Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Matt Hogue, Vice President and Athletic Director at Coastal Carolina University. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, on to the conversation. In the increasingly competitive collegiate landscape, it is becoming harder and harder to stand out. But Coastal Carolina University is a prime example of a university that has managed its growth well, fielding a football team that has become a powerhouse out of nowhere in recent years, as well as being home to the 2016 College World Series champions. Its recently expanded football stadium is already paying dividends, hosting one of the newest bowl games on the schedule. Coastal's longtime athletic director, Matt Hogue, joined us recently to explain how one school has plotted its growth and what other universities and communities can learn about how to make a splash on the largest stage possible. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Coastal Carolina athletic director, Matt Hogue, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Hey, Matt, it's a pleasure. Uh, good to be with you today. How does somebody who spends 17 years as the voice of the Chanticleers get involved in the athletic department in the first place on his way to eventually becoming athletic director? Well, you know, it's interesting. So I'm going on close to 25 years here at the institution. And and actually, while the public persona was calling games and being the play-by-play announcer for those 17 years, behind the scenes, I was doing a lot of other stuff for the university. So when I actually came to Coastal, I started in the athletic department working in sports information and then gravitated into marketing and other external areas, Uh, eventually got more into the administrative side, supervising sports. So really the training ground was going on all along. I'm just not sure a lot of folks realized, you know, I was kind of sort of living that double life where I would call games and be very, very public in that role. But at the same token, uh, very involved in what was happening day to day in athletic administration. But probably the one thing that kind of set the table for this role is in 2009, I moved away from athletics and went into a university uh, associate vice president's role, which was still marketing communications, you know, similar type disciplines. Uh, but it really had nothing to do with athletics. It was about branding the university, uh, obviously the PR and news aspect of, of promoting the institution and, and dealing with issues that come along. And that really kind of set the stage for that, that move into uh, the interim AD role and then eventually the full one. Uh, what I did do, though, up until I became AD was continue calling games. So everybody was still very familiar with that. But that, that was kind of how the background happened. It, it wasn't a, probably as much of a demonstrative shift <laughs> from one world to another. Uh, but certainly for those on the outside looking in, you know, it, it was a, an unorthodox uh, transition for sure, because you don't see a lot of folks that do what I do, um, you know, move into that uh, that day-to-day responsibility on the administrative side. Do you miss it? 
Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Uh, I, I miss it all the time. You know, it's something that maybe one day I'll get back involved with. You know, you never really wash that out of your blood. I think uh, I'm a broadcaster at heart. You know, sportscasting was something I always wanted to do. And that's why I, I chose that path, you know, going back to college and then and then getting started in the media from there and then eventually landing here. But I, I feel like there was a there was a time and place where the institution, you know, really wanted to maintain some succession in-house and really have someone who was interested in serving in that role. And, and, and that's kind of the way I approach it. It's more of a service, I think, to the institution. You know, I, I've been here 25 years, uh, as I said, and, and worked in a lot of capacities. You know, this is home. This is certainly a place that I identify closely with. So I'm probably a little different than, than, than my colleagues out there who are maybe trying to position and move and go from this job to that job. And certainly that always could be something that could happen or they could maybe, you know, say, hey, you know, 25 years is enough. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, this, this world is a crazy business in college athletics. But in some form or another, that, that's the kind of the way I see it is if, if I'm no longer working in this role, trying to continue serving the institution and maybe another. Two-time major championship winner Dustin Johnson played golf at Coastal Carolina. Baseball team, the Chanticleers, won the 2016 College World Series. Obviously, college football has developed into a national name the past couple of years. Among those moments, is there one that made you feel as if the athletic program had made it, so to speak, nationally? Or is there one that I didn't mention? Yeah, I think you would probably have to say that the national championship with baseball would be the one. Um, And you mentioned Dustin. You know, he's obviously gone on to have one of the the greatest careers ever in the history of professional golf, uh, you know, which is, is quite an achievement, obviously, for him. And, and it's such a privilege that he's, you know, one that we call our own. But I think, you know, the, the baseball national championship was was something that, you know, we weren't talking about like in football, an FCS title or, you know, it, that that's everybody. Everybody was in the mix to win that. You know, we had to go through the best of the best to win that championship. We had to beat Florida. We had to beat LSU, TCU, Texas Tech. I mean, we went through so many Power 5 programs to win. I, I think that served notice that, you know, we have a, an athletic department that, as our president, Dr. Benson, likes to say a lot, you know, punches above its weight. You know, we don't certainly don't have the level of resources uh, that power five schools have, or in many cases, you know, schools that are on the same peer level as us may possess, but we, we get the most out of it, I believe. You know, that, that's probably the moment where a lot of things changed, you know, but it also forces you to have to approach things a little differently too. You know, coaches get paid more when they win national championships, you know, and uh, it, it kind of changes the perception of, of when people come here and the, and the resources they expect. So you have to balance some of that as well. You mentioned resources, and in the time that Coastal's moved from the Big South Conference to the Sun Belt, a move that was made right around the time you won the College World Series, you moved into FBS football. There's been so much more in all of your programs. What has the school had to do in terms of building new venues and then also upgrading existing venues to the level that is needed to compete in Division One sports? And how do you make sure women's sports is also part of that growth, especially because football can take up a lot of money for even the most well-capitalized athletic departments? Yeah, you know, it's, it's always a, it's a puzzle and it's a balancing act uh, that you try to achieve. In terms of facilities, the, the biggest area that we had to address uh, obviously was our football facility, our, our stadium, because you do have an attendance requirement that comes with, with being an FBS member. Now, there's a lot of other requirements that you have to meet. You, know, you have to be over 200 grant aids. 
across your whole department. Uh, you have to field a certain number of sports. And we already met all of those. Uh, you know, we, we were in good shape there. Uh, there's a pretty lengthy and in-depth transition process that you have to go through over a two-year period with the NCAA to meet those benchmarks and thresholds before you're fully certified. But the one from a facility standpoint was to address Brooks Stadium and to expand it and grow. And, and, you know, that wasn't as much about what we had to do from a requirement standpoint. We certainly had to address that. But we're in one of the fastest growing areas uh, in the country. I think our our DMA, which is sort of how, you know, you determine the, the television markets and so forth, is like the second fastest growing in the country over a long period of time. So we knew we would have an opportunity if we get everything done then and to make that move we would really start filling that out and growing into it over, over a period of years. And I think we've really seen that vision come true. Uh, when you look at the consumption we've seen uh, over the last couple of years, uh, it's really unfortunate that the, the 2020 season, even though we, we had great success and, and that was really a breakthrough year for us in terms of national consciousness, we weren't able to fill our state because of the, the, the COVID rules and the, the, you know, the, the limitations on attendance. Uh, they were probably about as free in South Carolina as anywhere, but we still were very limited. So, yeah, that was a tough year to miss out on, particularly some of the opponents that came to our, our location. But I think we've really seen a nice incremental momentum that just continues to thrust forward uh, in terms of the folks moving into our area, how they've latched on to become fans of our programs. In terms of other facilities, we were in pretty good shape with our competitive facilities. I think what we've had to turn our attention to in our strategic plan are those supporting facilities. You know, one of the things we're working on right now is an indoor facility that not only would support what football is doing, but it provides us some you know auxiliary options for other sports when we get into weather issues. We just completed um, about a million dollar turf field that's uh, much larger than most game fields that all of our sports have been utilizing for practice uh, that you know, help, helps us get around issues with, you know, whether breaking up practice times or conflicts or what have you. So it's, it's been some of those shoulder needs that I think we've tried to address and ultimately those benefit all of our programs. So it helps kind of address the uh, you know, the equity side uh, as well. Uh, but, you look at our football stadium, that's also where our women's lacrosse team plays, you know, and their their uh, locker room facility is at that location. So they play in one of the largest lacrosse stadiums in America, you might say, uh, as well, you know, and, and we've hosted events there and so forth. So, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's always going to present challenges and you, you've got to continue to meet the needs. Uh, but I, I think we've, we've done a pretty nice job of it. You mentioned Brooks Stadium, home for the football team. When it broke ground in 2003, it was a 6,000-seat stadium. And you also reference how when you moved up to FBS, you had to make it a bigger stadium because of attendance requirements. It's now right around 21,000 seats. How over time have you determined in each of the stages of renovation and improvements that you've made there, what is what the capacity is best for the venue, for your program to balance things like fan demand, but also wanting to make sure that you don't have empty seats when you're out on a television broadcast? Yeah, I think we have a good size. I think what we've seen probably in the last you know five to six years has been obviously a, a change in the consumption patterns of the public. You know, when we've seen streaming apps where you can watch games, uh, you know, in our league, obviously we have a, a very strong contract with ESPN, which leads to a lot of ESPN plus programming. So it's so easy for folks to consume a game or watch a game now uh, that I think everybody faces a challenge with that. Uh, so I feel like we're, we're kind of right-sized 
uh, maybe in that total picture uh, right now. You know, our, our expansion to our stadium really kind of started from year one. So even after the first year in 2003, we actually added a few more seats before 2004. And then eventually by 2010, we were up close to the 10,000 capacity. So a lot of that happened in, in kind of stair-step fashion before we had even contemplated moving up to FBS. So the latest expansion really doubled our size. And one thing that we've seen is you know, there's no way we would be able to put the people who are engaged with us now in the old facility. So eventually we, we were going to be facing expansion, I think, whether we made the move or not, just simply because we have more engagement. Uh, you know, we have more people who live here. Uh, they continue to move here by the by the day. Uh, it's a retirement uh, influx of folks. So you have folks that have time on their hands. And in many cases, they have disposable income. That's a big part of our uh, our fan base now. And we've seen our season tickets go up. We just came off the best year ever that we've had in terms of total ticket sales uh, at football. So I think we saw, you know, hopefully a bump that continues, but certainly we saw a, a bump of people being able to get back out and go to events, you know, as a post-pandemic situation. So, you know, I think what we've always tried to do is, is make incremental adjustments. The big piece in all this, Matt, I think now is you've got to be a lot more focused on the premium areas. We have some nice offerings in premium areas, but I can see over time where we begin to start transitioning more, especially with the project that we have on the books now to, f- to fill out our south end zone uh, with what will be the new College of Health and Human Performance, which is a great tie-in with the academic piece to our campus, but also that works its way into the indoor and some other pieces we will have premium options there that are probably better than anything we've ever had. So I think you have to kind of think in terms of regular seats and transitioning to maybe more premium options, because we know that when somebody comes to a game, they, they want so much more than, uh, than just sitting in their seat and watching a game, or at least a certain part of the population does. At Brooks Stadium, you host the Myrtle Beach Bowl each year. The HTC Center, where the basketball and volleyball programs play, is the host for the Myrtle Beach Invitational Basketball Tournament. When you have those events, which are in addition to the national branding that you already are able to get for your programs, how do you work with the local CVB for for those events to develop and promote them to make sure you get even more optimal branding, both on a, on a local level, but also nationally, because those are going to be on ESPN, like you said. Absolutely. And I think a lot of what we're talking about, you know, it's, it's the thing that I like to, to always uh, stress and underscore, especially with our leadership or external leadership, is you're always watching the dollars and cents. But the, the qualitative impact of, of what we're doing, I think we all know, has enormous uh, potential and enormous ways to transform not only your university, but also what happens with your, your community. And, you know, sports tourism is something that the, the general Grand Strand area, you know, Myrtle Beach, um, you know, we've got other communities uh, that are surrounding us that are involved. It's probably one of those, those few things where you have a lot of the local communities kind of stitched together, right? They're kind of moving in the same direction, even though they may have other areas that are more germane to, to what their community does or their municipality. Sports tourism is something everyone has kind of latched onto. We sort of are a hub. We, we sit in the middle of that. And I think we've taken our position very seriously about supporting that wherever we can support it. You know, we've been able to attract NCAA championships in addition to the bowl game and the Myrtle Beach Invitational, but other championships have, have landed here. A couple of years ago, we hosted an NCAA golf regional for the first time. 
got an NCAA track championship coming up uh, in a couple of years. The same thing has been true with some Sunbelt championships that we've been able to host in our conference. So, you know, we work with those guys at the Myrtle Beach Chamber. Uh, you know, Jonathan Paris and his staff have been tremendous. And when they say, hey, we'd like to try this, if we can make it work, we can. And, you know, case in point, in 2017, the ACC moved all of its championships because of a, a, an issue with some political legislation. As many of us remember, they moved all their championships out of North Carolina, literally at moment's notice. And we took the women's basketball tournament, the ACC tournament, and we played it in our building at the HTC Center. And, you know, that was a that was a challenge to our staff. That was a challenge to our resources. But we made it happen. And the payoff was immense to what it meant, not only to relationships with that conference and to helping them out, but it was a huge boost to our economy here in February, driving fans, driving teams into, into our area. And that's not something that we, we see on our bottom line at the university, but it, it pays huge dividends to the overall goals and vision of our area. And that's exactly what the bowl game and the Myrtle Beach Invitational has done as well. You know, you've had years where we've had fan bases come into town that, that have really overrun the area because those events are so important to to them and they want to they want to come to town and it's the same thing with the opponents that we play in football i mean when you see and other sports when you see us open the season this year with army uh, at home that's going to bring a ton of people in, into our area and and it's that type of thrust that we can help support the uh, you know the, the bigger vision of the area you're listening to the sports chapel podcast Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, back to the episode. The Chanticleers football program was once number one in the country in FCX. You were successful at that decade, uh, in that level for over a decade. But then you moved up to FBS. And there have been schools that have been successful when doing that, but there have been others where the the greener pastures aren't so green. How has the school's success in football translated to other sports? And can you be a successful athletic program if the football team underperforms? Well, they, that's certainly your flagship, right? So you you need to have that success uh, to kind of set the tone for everything else. Uh, and the biggest reason is because of how, you know, the revenue model is set up, you know, and, and I know we, we all probably would like to see differences in terms of how the model is out there. But the reality is college football is driving an enormous amount of money, as is college basketball to a certain extent, too. But, you know, the college football playoff has put so many more dollars into the system. You know, when, when we contemplated this move, that was a big piece of it. the expectation that at some point down the road, we probably would see the college football playoff system expanded. Now, we haven't quite gotten there. You know, there's there's some intractable issues, it seems right now with with the way certain conferences view it uh, and the overall structure of the college football playoff. But hopefully those will eventually be solved as we get toward the end of the first rights contract, which is, is coming due here in a few years. But ultimately, the vision was when that expands, do you want to be on the outside looking in or do you already want to be a viable piece of the system? And that was our viewpoint. You know, certainly at FCS, we had tremendous success. As you mentioned, we were ranked number one. We had deep playoff runs. 
But I think from an exposure standpoint, a national consciousness standpoint, being able to tie in and have symmetry with how you're recruiting students to your institution, the, the stage of FBS is just different. You know, it just provides an incredibly different stage uh, for exposure. You look at, you know, the bowl game we played in last year in the Cure Bowl, TV ratings on a game like that and some of the residual coverage of it outweighs maybe the semifinal playoff game that you would have played. So, uh, you know, even though the competitive stakes are a little different, uh, the exposure for your institution and the brand value that comes with it is, is almost undeniable. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to kind of keep everything moving forward. But I think if you talk to a lot of our other coaches, they would tell you that recruiting becomes easy for them when they can bring a, an official visit to a big football weekend where there's tons of people on campus and it's a great environment. You've got a full stadium. That actually benefits them getting better players winning those recruiting battles. And there's so many things that impact that now. You've got NIL and the other issues. You know, we see it as one of those things that's an overall positive. And again, when you tie it back into that economic impact concept, it's almost just, you know, six or seven more ways our area, the Grand Strand, gets impacted in terms of visitors and and money that they're spending into our local economy. You mentioned NIL, and it's really revolutionized college sports in a very short time since it became available for college for college athletes. Obviously, you're a mid-major. You hope that it will make mid-majors as competitive as ever before, if not even more competitive. What way do you think it could go? Could you think mid-majors are going to be able to utilize that effectively or the real, the big gap that is financially between power five conferences and mid-majors just only going to expand? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, that, that could very well be an outcome. I, I think all of us are trying to attack it from an infrastructure standpoint. The, the one thing that's a little bit hard to get a handle on from an NIL standpoint is so much of it becomes market driven. Right. And, and I think, you know, a lot of what we do in college athletics for years, we've had very rigid kind of well-known barriers, you know, use the term guardrails that's been thrown out a lot, you kind of know what the landscape is, you know, and that that doesn't mean that people, you know, in our business don't figure out maybe how to get beyond that landscape. You know, we we know the stories, but, but you, you kind of had, you sort of had your barriers, you had your boundaries. We really don't have those now. And I think that's where it's become challenging for everyone. But ultimately, some of those boundaries are simply being driven by marketplace dynamics that are hard to control in and of themselves. Uh, You could have or we could have the best NIL infrastructure put together, but if there's not a funding mechanism, you know, or or funding options within the marketplace, whether that's donors, sponsors, wherever, to actually execute it, then you you start to fall fall behind. That's the part that I think becomes a challenge. You know, there there are some schools that can probably survive with a separate foundation in addition to funding sources that can support the NIL climate. Other schools may not be able to have both of those successfully live together. Uh, What we do know, though, is, again, the regulatory environment has become almost completely absent, you know, other than the NCAA's kind of two North Stars, which are you can't use it as a recruiting inducement and can't be used as pay for play. There's got to be a quid pro quo relationship in there. Aside from that, there's really not much more out there that governs it. You know, even in our state currently in South Carolina, there is a proviso in the state budget this year that would suspend the South Carolina state law for a year because 
quite honestly, you know, and for those of us that work in it, uh, it was providing restrictions uh, that really put the state schools at a disadvantage compared to other states. So, you know, that, that's a pretty remarkable set of circumstances when you think about it. A, a state law that was put in place only a year ago now is something that's really deemed necessary to kind of put on pause for a while because it could be hurting the competitive advantages. In college sports, that's where you see these things, right? Because there's so much emotion, there's so much passion, there's there's such a drive to get that competitive edge. So I don't know that anybody has the crystal ball. I, I think we've all got to be paying very, very close attention to the, the potential of, of athletes becoming employees. Uh, you know, there's enough legitimate um, pieces of legal items moving through the system right now. It may take a few years. Uh, that could change the designation of what uh, a student athlete actually is. That's going to be another major lever that shifts everything. So, you know, I, I say this a lot. We've seen this business change more in the last five years than it did in the previous 50. And it's, uh, it's almost like it's hard to keep up on a day-to-day basis sometimes. But hopefully from the NIL standpoint, we, you know, I know that there's a lot of consensus that if we could get some type of federal intervention, you know, federal law or legislation that at least creates a consistent one size fits all kind of um, regulation, that that'll help maybe rein it in and everybody at least knows the rules they're playing by, because right now it literally can differ from one state border to another. Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbuck said to Sports Illustrated this week, and I'm paraphrasing the breakup of college sports at the NCAA division one level is inevitable. You mentioned how much change has been in the last five years. We can only fathom what the next five years are going to be. Does that make being in college athletics exciting or scary as an administrator? Especially, especially, I mean, for everything that coastal has done and that we've been talking about, you are a member of the Sun Belt. And you're in a state, for just for example, obviously, the state of South Carolina, you have South, the Gamecocks, they're in the SEC, you have the Clemson Tigers in the ACC. Those are, those are unfortunately very different financial models that you're, while competing at the same level. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say, first off, and, and, you know, what we've been able to accomplish in a lot of ways is probably a testament to this. And there's many other schools out there that can say the same thing is, I think we know that in the in, in just the fabric of, of athletic competition, dollars don't guarantee anything. Now, in some cases, they, they may guarantee a higher probability <laughs> that you, you get where you need to or, or more of a consistency of championships or what have you. But, you know, I, 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 ho- I hope and I believe that, you know, you're, you're still always going to have the essence of who's competing the best on that given day who's coaching the best, who's the most prepared. Sometimes that doesn't always just go the direction of who has the most toys, if you will, or the most resources. And I think a lot of schools that are in our category like to think of it that way. And I think we've proven that that can be done. Now, you know, with all that said, you're putting your head in the sand if you don't realize that I think that comment has a a good bit of legitimacy to it. Um, What we don't know is what is that structure going to be? There's a transformation committee right now within the NCAA that is taking a hard look at everything on the table. You know, how does division one membership look, you know, does it render itself to a separate division? What happens to the championship structures if that occurs? I mean, all these questions are being asked. But I would also say that there are plenty of people among that committee that are, have a seat at that table 
that sit from the same perspective that we do at a coastal Carolina or others, other of my colleagues in the Sun Belt are going to be seeing it the same lens. So, you know, hopefully there's a, there's a balance of, of those ideas and there's, there's a balance of thought on what makes the most sense, uh, you know, going forward. I, I really, I really hope that we don't damage, you know, what I think is, is a, is a really compelling part of our society. When you watch the NCAA tournament and what a St. Peter's did this year, do you really want to trade that for games that maybe don't have the same level of interest? And, and I do think – I am a believer that there does become a diminishing value. Now, that may not be the case for the rabid fan bases of those particular institutions, but I do think for where college athletics fits in the fabric of the whole society, you do at some point start to have some diminishing value if you lose some of the, that uniqueness that has made it really interesting and, quite frankly, has made it more lucrative through the years. You know, I'd hate to lose those dynamics or relegate that to a separate division in some cases because I think we lose the, the, the essence and the beauty of what makes this uh, work within uh, you know, our country. Going back to your background as an announcer, your favorite guy to listen to when watching a game today is who? When you're able to relax at home on the weekend or at night, you turn on a game and you hear a voice and you're like, okay, that's the, this is the game I want to watch. You know, that's, that's tough because there's, there's so many, so many announcers out there that do, uh, do a really nice job. Um, yeah, I would say probably on the national level, especially as you watch college sports or you're watching golf, you know, I think, I think Jim Nance is a guy I've always, you know, thoroughly enjoyed listening to. I think he's, he's the consummate professional. He's, his preparation is rock solid, but he doesn't, he doesn't dominate the surroundings, right? You know, I, I think I've always appreciated maybe or, or gravitated to announcers that kind of take that approach. I think that's an approach that I tried to take when, when I was, was involved. Uh, but man, there's, there, there's a lot of good ones. You know, I, I, I grew up in ACC, kind of SEC, ACC country, but around the Charlotte area. So, uh, you know, some of those legendary uh, radio voices really back then, guys like Woody Durham in North Carolina, Bob Harris at Duke, Bob Fulton in South Carolina, you know, Jim Phillips at Clemson. You know, th- those were ones that I think I gained a lot of feel and cadence and trademark from just listening and, and then becoming an announcer myself. Uh, but there's a lot of guys that do that, that do a great job. I, I think, you know, the, the ones, again, that I, I probably enjoy the most is where I, I don't have to hear any kind of shtick <laughs> or any kind of, you know, sort of routine. Uh, I think when, when announcers start to sound more like they're trying to, you know, kind of win the night at the comedy club, versus calling a game, uh, you know, the, I probably am going to go a different direction than that. The, the craft is definitely alive and well. Well, I hope you're able to be able to relax during the summer as much as you can <laughs> and watch as many games ahead of the fall because obviously football and, and season will be underway, but not to to downplay the spring and the rest of baseball season in any way, shape, or form. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's 24-7 now, Matt, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get those breaks when we can squeeze them in. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Matt, I appreciate the time, and I appreciate your thoughts, and thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. 
Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trow for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.